Like if you could start businesses with something that you're already expending hours per week of your time yeah. and you can make money for it, or at least break even enjoying your hobbies, like you should go do that. The Move Entrepreneur Evolved Podcast. Get on it. And we're back with another episode of the Moved Entrepreneur Evolved Podcast. I'm excited about today's episode. There may be some commonalities and some experiences I've had. And uh, we've got an incredible guest, Tony Watley. He's the founder of 365 Driven. He wrote the book, Side Hustle Millionaire, business coach, podcast host, speaker, and author. What's up, man? How you doing? Come from, from Dow or coming from Texas. Houston, Texas, and talking right. to San Diego, California. We're going Gulf Coast to West Coast. Hey, Jason, thanks for having me on the show, man. Good to, good to meet you, and I hope to uh, share some value or maybe hurt some feelings on this episode. I like it, man. Coming in with uh, some spikes and some hugs. That's it. That's it. So um, I'm going to kind of go back. I was kind of doing a little bit of my you know due diligence, and it looks like... Uh, you do come from the Driven 365, you know, you create a podcast, but I think that pulled back into um, the auto industry. And um, I was kind of curious, was your auto industry starting on the sales side? Was it, was it in the enthusiastic side, enthusiast side? Was it the mechanic side, modification, parts? Where did, where did that all start, man? Well, it started out as me being a car enthusiast, more like a car fanatic since I was a kid. And I built the largest General Motors performance community on the internet. So that was ls1tech.com. We grew that one to over 300,000 registered members. I also created performancetrucks.net, which we grew to 270,000 registered members. And so they were just automotive community. People like to race, make their cars go faster, get the best deals on parts, understanding you know, how to become a better driver, things like that. And we had instant access to all the people in the industry and the media and all the VIP credentials for that. And you know, we did racing events around the country, primarily drag racing back then when I owned the company. And it's just, I'm a community builder. So we monetize it just like Zuckerberg and them do with Facebook. They get enough traffic, they get enough people visiting. The value proposition is very high. So they keep coming back. It's free for the users. But then we just had ads. We had sponsors. We had ads. Mm. We had over 150 advertising accounts. And that's how we monetize that business. And that's cool, man. Was that back? Uh, maybe you can give me some contacts. Was that 2000? Was that? Yeah, we, we started that in November 2001 and we sold that in 2007. Oh, you had a good little run there. Um, did you have a e-com connected to that? That was, uh, I was uh, kind of during that time. Um, I'll kind of chime in in a second, but um, were you attached to an e-com side? We're on the ad side or um, what was Yeah, we, we actually uh, created a drop shipping business based on wheels for cars. So high-end forged wheels because I identified that we didn't have a sponsor at the time that was selling any wheels. And here I am in a massive automotive community and I see all these people buying wheels from all these different websites and people were coming to me for advice and, hey, what fits my car? What would look good on my car? What finishes would you choose? And I was just giving them this free advice and then I was referring it out. And I was like, man, I'm probably referring hundreds of thousands of dollars of business just, just to do that. So you know what? How about I go create a dropship company where they can just buy them from me. So I did the buy-ins and I became a dealer for several of the high-end brands. And I didn't want to deal with the cheap wheels. I, I saw that market and the cheap wheels for people that don't know the car scene, it's probably $1,000 a set. So you got these Taiwanese, Chinese wheels that come over. They're 1000 a set. That's the cheap wheel market. High-end wheels are five dollars to $10,000 a set, yeah. generally, like average around 6000 a set. And so the margins are very similar, but it's a 
it's a much bigger profit when you think about that. And also the different levels of clientele that you work with, people buying a $1,000 set are not the same people buying a $6,000 set of wheels. And I found that the people that were offering you the least were actually the most picky and actually the hardest customers to satisfy. I mean, we would get a guy that would come in, buy the cheapest wheels possible, and he'd be like, there's an imperfection in the powder coating. I see a speck of dust in this thing. It's not perfect. And wanting a refund or wanting some kind of a discount. Yeah. It's like, man, and the people that go buy the nice stuff, they're like, dude, this is our, our work of art. Love it. My card looks fantastic. I can't wait to show these to my, my friends or get it in a magazine. So they had a lot different appreciation for the values that they were buying. Yeah, man. Um, during those times that you were right around that time, actually, uh, you said seven or so five. Um, I had, uh, I was in working for Harley Davidson and, um, actually purchased a company, uh, called choppers apparel back then. And, um, the guy was a car enthusiast, race cars. Um, his name was Dave and, um, he basically, uh, had had this business called choppers apparel. I brought it over and turned it over to chopperwire.com. And as I had done that, I learned the same thing that you learned, which was basically like the guy going back and just kind of plug it together, actually worked for Honda as well. And the customer between Harley Davidson and Honda, though that's a higher quality vehicle, everything like that, but the attitude of the customer was much different. And they really wanted to come back. And one of the things I think that you talk about as being a community uh, creator is that those guys, they want to hang out. Like it's, it's, it's like a purchase and they want to hang out. And I'm, I think that you probably experienced that as well. Um, did you, did you create the brand yourself or was it someone else's brand? Did you drop ship it or was it actually your brand, the forge? Oh, well, I actually started the brands. I've always, I've started all my other companies. I've never purchased a company. I've only sold them. And, uh, it's funny thing. It's like the Harley around that time, 2007, 2009, my wife and I both had Harleys. So I had a fat boy. And I'll have had a V-Rod night, night Rod special. And then she also had a Sportster 883 for herself. So, yeah, we both used to ride the bikes. I, I get the culture, man. And it's it's a community. It really is. A Harley is a community thing. Just like the Jeep guys. It's a community Dude, thing. You're right. <laughs> I used to own yeah. a Jeep, man. And it's like, they just want to hang out all the That's time. Right. Mm -hmm. All the time. And I think that comes into um, when, when you talk about the car business that you're in. I think it's really interesting because... The auto industry, Harley industry, there's so many different facets of that business. You know, um, you look at um, the wheel side, or you say this person's a part of the this car stereo side, or any of those things. And those people tend to come around. If uh, you had mentioned you were in the kind of the uh, drag racing side, wh what did you find like in the type of person? Some people call it avatar, or thing like that. What, what was that kind of person that you would say was that enthusiast? What were some of those characteristics that you found that were kind of commonalities in those type of people? Well, you know, back then, just for context, okay, so my primary market was guys that are buying Corvettes, Pontiac Trans Ams, or new Camaro SSs. And these were all brand new cars at the time, okay? So average price for a Camaro of Trans Am, 25 to 30,000. That was actually pretty good money back then. You know, it's 20 years ago. And Corvettes at that time were probably around 40,000. Mm -hmm. So my avatar was generally men, I would say 90% men that had extra money to blow on toys and enjoyed their lifestyle. They were maybe successful in their careers or their business, and they're willing to go buy the brand new vehicles and learn to modify those things. So it wasn't the second hand, third hand, fourth hand owners. 
I mean, nowadays, the same demographics, the owners there, it's a different group. It's the fifth generation owners of these cars that you can buy for $5,000 rusted out or 500,000 miles on them. So it's a different dynamic now than it was back then. But so we understood that these people had money to spend and the magazines, they knew that they were all these people were their avatar as well. So they would advertise their racing events and all the manufacturers of the parts and all the speed shops, all these things around the country, even the world even would advertise on the website to give you guys an idea of how busy this site was back then. We had over 100,000 unique visitors per day. So put that in the visual perspective of if you're a brick and mortar storefront owner on main street, anywhere in the world, what would it look like if 100,000 people walked in your front door every single day? That's the kind of business that I've built. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny because we've got some commonality here, bringing back a lot of uh, some old memories. And um, when you're on the internet, you get tagged as a specific person. And there was two that remind me of this. When the community's there, the internet would assume that you were a part of that. And I remember um, when, when Jesse James cheated on Sandra Bullock. And because we saw a lot of Jesse James stuff at the time, we would get all these hate mail. <laughs> thinking that we were actually him and we'd get these letters or these emails and it's like, I can't believe you do this. And then there was a motorcycle guy named Indian Larry. I don't know if you ever remember him. Um, might be a name that you remember just because of the beginning, but anyways, his, his staple was he would stand on his motorcycle and do like this. And then he actually, he died. And then we'd get all of the stuff from them. So I think you're right. Like in the sense of like the internet, was such a shift from the the brick and mortar that you would just have all these people coming together almost out of like you didn't realize the amount of people that were there and then you kind of took a, a chance to kind of monetize it my um my question just because the uh this is i think pulls into business as well and and we talk about business here a lot and when you when you went into the into the wheels um, business, you started dropshipping. What was one of the things that you found? Did you did you play in the design yourself, or was it more or less you found a manufacturer and then said, "Hey, I think I can uh, place my like a Kirkland type of model." What was your what was your formula on that? Well, for me, it was building relationships with the manufacturers because being the leader of a very large community, I was able to do a lot of project vehicles. I built over forty project vehicles, a lot of them heavily sponsored with wheels and brakes and supercharger kits and engine builds. So, you know, we were showcasing the vendors that were advertisers on our website and the people that, you know, were participating in our in our community. So I'd already established those relationships. And also was different than a lot of the forum owners back then is because I would actually go to all the automotive conventions to meet these people that were sending me these checks, mm -hmm. make sure I got to have a really good relationship with them. They could recognize me. We had a good, you know, off business relationship. So when it came time to get the scoop on what the newest thing was going to come out or the newest vehicle, I mean, I had Chevrolet having me write their articles for their newest engines and their newest Camaros and things like that. And I was doing the test drives for these things before anybody had those access. So build those relationships for mm -hmm. build the network first and understand that the potential that exists later on, you don't understand it. It, it could happen or it may not happen, but it's the intent. Like, hey, I just want to make sure I'm surrounding myself with the good people that are doing some cool things in the world. And maybe an opportunity arises from this or maybe not. But it was very easy for me to go become a dealer for these brands because I'd already been using their products on my vehicles. Yeah, And they're like, dude, yeah, we'd love to have you as a dealer. Like, you could just sell them direct. You don't have to send them back to us. And, you know, some of the brands were very expensive to, to become a dealer back then. 
some of these brands, you would have to go buy $25,000 worth of wheels. Yeah. Today's dollars, that's probably $35,000 worth of wheels. So you have to go make that on your first order. Yeah. So the easiest way for me to do that was go to my community and go, hey, I would like to become a dealer for these brands. Anybody want to have a sale on these wheels? And I would just pre-sell them to the people in my group, and then I would have my order. So I didn't even have to use my own money to do that. So I understand that there were some benefits to having that leverage. But that's one thing that most people don't understand is you gain the leverage from your community size and the activity that can help you with your own business. So it wasn't just Tony Watley that was going to go do the feature for the magazine. It was Tony Watley and hundreds of thousands of his people watching that would get the access to that. So if you can build the communities, you start to build leverage for opportunities for not only yourself, but your business. Yeah, that's really good, man. I think that most people, I think off off kind of... I like to joke around. We were in the green room <laughs> before this, but you know, it's it's we we were basically talking about that. You know, we were talking about podcast stuff and things like that, and the relationships that you forged through the time. We were talking about doing podcasts, you doing yours, obviously, and and the relationships that you create from that. And sometimes there's not really anything that's monetized in these things. We just are basically two people getting together, hanging out a little bit, and then creating some comfortability. And I think that when you have a niche that people recognize, they say, look, in the car, in, in the um, auto business, car enthusiast business, you have this commonality of almost trust instantly because you're like, hey, you know what? If this guy knows this guy, this guy knows this guy, you kind of, it's like a little country club. You kind of got to make sure you don't screw your name if you're in that community or you kind of get popped out like a pimple. What was, um, as you, uh, if 2007, you sell it, uh, did you, you sell off the community? Did you sell off the site? How did that work out? Yeah, it was an asset sale. So we sold the entire community, all the digital assets, the trademarks, everything like that. So it was a multiple seven figure exit and we didn't care any debt. So I netted a couple million from doing that. Wow. That's, that's cool. Did you go through one of those? Did you have anything else that you were, that you were, and I, I'm only using some assumptions here, which isn't going to get me anywhere, but I would assume that through what you were just talking about, it was a very passionate project. I mean, you're in it, you're doing everything in it. When you sold it, did you go through that? Like, well, what do I do next? Or did you have something in line? No, because here's the thing about that. Even though I built a very successful business, I always had a full-time career in oil and gas engineering. So I'm a mechanical engineering. I was working in the offshore oil industry. And so I was very highly paid in that, but I didn't have the car thing. Like I'm always the car fanatic. So for the reason for me to go build the automotive businesses is because I felt like I wanted to go scratch that itch. And, you know, I was already in that space as an enthusiast. So why not get some discounts and do the things I enjoy? Why not make some money from the things that you enjoy? When your hobbies start to pay you, that's a beautiful thing, you know? And and so I just did it because I wanted a cool place for people to hang out and talk about cars. I didn't think it was going to make millions of dollars. Like that was never the intention. It was me yeah. teaching myself how to build websites. It was me teaching myself how to do Photoshop and graphic design, me teaching myself how to do videos and photography and things like that. And it just grows and grows and grows. So I think that when you're starting a company, especially something in your passions, like I see the guitars in the background, I know that you like martial arts and MMA. Like if you could start businesses with something that you're already expending hours per week of your time yeah. and you can make money for it, or at least break even enjoying your hobbies, like you should go do that. You should go create that LLC. You should start to learn how to write things off to be able to enjoy the things you want. If you just create a podcast on NFL perhaps and just do a daily or a weekly update on your NFL games, you can literally write off things and get paid to talk about the thing you're already talking about anyways. But so many people don't realize this kind of stuff. So I just did that with cars. 
said, hey, maybe if I build this thing, I can get discounts on parts. And I literally bartered things back then, man. I would be, say, I, I, would, I, had, a, I had a Trans Am and I'd call up an exhaust company and I said, hey, I need an exhaust for my Trans Am. I noticed that your website's either outdated or you don't even have a website. How about I build you a website, you know, three pager worth three, four thousand bucks. And you just send me an exhaust system and I'll review it and you know, we'll just trade. And they were like, oh, hell yeah. Like, because well, they know what their margin is on their product. They're probably making 50 points on their products. They're like, yeah, we'll give you a f- full exhaust system and then you'll just build our website. So I did that for a few cars and I started running out of cars to modify. I was like, well, okay, and I'm just going to start charging for these websites. So that was actually my first side hustle was just building websites. And I taught myself how to do that by reading books. Now it's a whole lot easier. Like we didn't have... Uh, WordPress and drag and drops. Like it's, it's super, <laughs> like if you guys are out there and you're complaining about not knowing how None to build a website, right. you just haven't tried. You, you're, you're fucking pathetic. You just haven't tried. It's super easy nowadays. Well, I guess I'm just going to dive right into that. Let's just take, let's date, at least I'll date myself and kind of pull this because I think we're in the same time. I started in the internet business like 2002. And um, if you remember the days when you would actually have to go in there and you'd have to change the code and then you'd have to go to every single page. And then when they would go to the next page, you had to make sure the header was recreated exactly yep. the same because every page was a home page. Every page. You had to code it. Yeah. We had to learn HTML and all the yeah. CSS style sheets and JavaScript. I mean, there was all these different languages. We had to learn them and meant we used to lay out a, the visuals of a page on our screen, like on Photoshop. And then remember having to slice out the buttons individually on the graphics and then programming those on the, the coding to make them stack in the right order and crazy stuff like that. It's, it's not that it's nothing like that nowadays. It's a whole lot easier and actually a lot better now. I think um, this kind of brings us right into the book that you wrote, which is Side Hustle Millionaire. And one thing that I always respect and, you know, I'm, I think I run this thin line sometimes when I'm doing something because if I don't really do it, 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 I just don't feel like it's very authentic. If I haven't done it, if I haven't gone through the mud, if I, I just, I, I just feel like I'm some kind of motivational speaker, who rah rah, kind of talking about it. And I think there really is the the skill that maybe people miss is that you kind of got to get in the mud. And I think that something that you have brought to light, and that is the side hustle millionaire, is that what I'm hearing from you, and and if you guys are all listening, like you, that is exactly what you did. I mean, you literally went in and you said, look, I'm just going to, you know, kind of sometimes I use the word like just you talked about like, hey, there's the guitar. It's like just feather a little bit, a little bit. And eventually, if we use the Warren Buffett concept of, you know, compound interest and things like that, that starts to slowly build. What was the thing at some point? Was this many years later? Was it around that time you said, look, I'm going to write a book and share people a little bit about how to kind of do the side hustle millionaire and that type of attitude. What was the kind of engagement or the concept in your brain to do that? So I think that most of us that have written a book, we have that idea in our brains for years. We just have it in our brains. Maybe we don't have the the confidence to put that out. Or maybe we'd think, why would people listen to me? Like the, all these self-worth or self-doubt type things that creep into our minds, right? And I get it. You shouldn't go write a book on things that you haven't explore, you know, explored yourself or gotten results from, right? And so what this happened for me and how I even ended up as a business coach is that there was several former employees of mine that always asked for business advice. So I literally helped so many companies, dozens of them start up through my community and also as 
private mentoring, just people that were in my inner circle, people proximity to me, family, co-workers at the jobs I worked at. And I built seven and eight and one nine figure company from people that I used to just be around. And so they were always telling me, Tony, you should be teaching people this. Like, look at these results. Like, and I, and I didn't want to, I, I, I felt I was really good at the being the MVP in the background. I was really good at hiding behind the logo, the brand, and, you know, just from, you know, insecurities or self-doubt, those kind of things that we have. Maybe you're bullied in junior high, things like that. I just, I was comfortable not sticking my head out and taking the spotlight. I was really good at being the MVP in the background. That's probably why I'm, yeah. you know, that's why I'm more of a community builder than an influencer that tries to be like, it's all about me and I'm just super awesome. You guys are here because I'm awesome. Like, I don't understand people like that. I get what they do, what they do, but I don't understand. I don't resonate with those people. And so- through that course of about 15 years of business, helping people, just randomly helping them, we started to see these results. And then in 2015, I left the oil industry. There was an industry downturn. And then I was also in a major car accident at the racetrack and I hit a concrete wall at 130 miles per hour. And in that moment of approaching that wall, I thought I was going to die in that moment. I even said to myself in that moment, well, here I go. Mm. And so what emerged from that accident was a series of questions you start to ask yourself. Like, what if I would have died right there? I was I was sitting in the back of the ambulance looking at the wreckage and it was just, I mean, there's wheels off the car, the entire front of the car smashed in up to the windshield. Mm. And I had no major injuries, but I was very lucid and, and thinking about it in that moment. I was, what if I would have died right there? You know, then your next going in your head dude, man, for sure. Yeah. And, and the next, the next question is how would I have been remembered? And you should sit with that one. If you're, if you're watching this or listening to this, if you were to die today, because no day is guaranteed, how would you be remembered today? And be honest with yourself. How would you be remembered? And the best way we could kind of formulate what that is, is we maybe look at our friends or peers or people that we knew that recently passed away that we perceived at the same social status or the same friend circles. Like, how were they remembered? How did I compare? And man, the answer came to me really quickly when I put it in that perspective. And I said, I would have been nice, rich guy cool cars gone too soon. And I said, man, nice rich guy has cool cars gone too soon. Is that, is that really enough? Is that really what I want to be remembered as? Mm. And for me, it was just like that blinking neon light that you see behind me. And it was like, hell no, that's, that's just good, but not good enough. And that's not even close to your potential. And so then I spent the next couple of years thinking about what the hell is my potential? What is my purpose? What, what does that even mean? It's such a deep question. What is my legacy? How am I going to impact this world to go create a nonprofit? Do I become a motivational speaker? Do I like, there's all these different ideas that we can do these things, but it all boils down to you as an individual. Like how are you best in, how are you going to be the best version of yourself to impact this world? Because we all have different skills. We all have different impacts or gifts that are within us. So nobody has the same answer. So you have to figure out what is the best course of action for you personally to go impact this world. And for me, the resonating thing that people kept coming to me for advice was business. Two things I've loved since I was a kid. Man, I, used to, I was a kid. I was a 12-year-old that had the subscriptions to all the business magazines because I didn't grow up with money. I was yeah. broke. My parents didn't have money. So I figured I can read these car magazines at the grocery store with my mom shopping. And while she's doing, I can also read these money thing magazines. I don't understand it, but I'll read them to maybe figure out how to talk about money, how to make money. And that's what I did. And so I've always had a passion for both on equal regards. That's why I can speak at a very high level of energy about business. 
I said, that's the thing. That's the thing I should be doing. Well, how do I do that? Man, I don't like being on camera. I don't like being on stage. I have stage fright. I don't like the way I sounded my recorded voice. Like all these things that keep you from putting yourself out there. But it's like, you know what? Fuck that, Tony. It's like you could have died right there and took all your knowledge and love and passion and energy for that subject with you. And now you're going to hide because you're worried about potential criticisms and potential haters and naysayers and critics. It's like that doesn't work when you start to think about you facing death. Like you realize that in that moment that I'm not afraid of death. I was peaceful in that moment. So why am I afraid of critics and haters and potential naysayers that aren't going to be there to support me for my entire life? So where I'm going with this, I know it went really deep, is that, I like it. guys, the, thing, the things that you're putting aside, the things that you're avoiding, the things that you're not pursuing in your life that you know you should be because you're so worried about not failure, but worried about what people will say about your failure. It always goes back to other people. So in this moment, start to realize that those critics, those haters, those naysayers, they're not going to be at your deathbed when you become an old person. They're not going to be at your funeral when you die. So why are you letting them run your life and dictate what you do and don't do today while you have a chance to make a difference? You know, it's um, and it, it's interesting, and I appreciate you being honest, man, and just sharing that. And I think that if, if anybody that's listening to this, and I think that it's um, something that people don't recognize enough, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna highlight it is that as you were telling that story, I could feel the dog in you that was there, and I think that you've carried on that dog that it's still a fight. It still is not something that goes away. You know, um, I think you said you were the, around 200 episode 283, and these things don't go away. I, th I think that you do get past them. I think you do get more confident, but you, I can tell, just recognize that, you know, I'm not saying it's in insecurity. I'm saying that you overcame it and you recognize that it was a dog that you had to, that you had to fight. And I think that, um, as you hear more authentic people do things and, you know, actually experience things that they get the the feeling that you're getting and i think that that's what people really are, are are missing that there's a dog in there that you have to fight and i i think that you express that very well man thanks a lot appreciate, really appreciate that. yeah that. i think that i think we all have that dog to fight i just think that everybody thinks that they have more time they keep talking about someday i mean i don't know what calendars are you buying jason because i don't see any calendars that have someday listed on there as a day but everybody keeps talking about someday, like they got, oh, I'm waiting for the perfect time, I'm waiting for the perfect opportunity. It's like, no, man, like tomorrow is not guaranteed. The rest of today is not guaranteed. So why are you really putting it off? Because whatever excuses that you're using, you got to realize thousands, if not millions of people had that same excuse, but they still went and did what you're talking about. So if you're blaming your kids or your spouse or lack of money or like, all these issues, like people have figured it out and there's courses and paths already laid out for you to go do the same thing, but there's something else that's keeping you from doing that. And I'll tell you, most of the time that's worried about what people will think or say about your potential failure. Wow. I think that another thing too, and, and you had brought up that some of my passions and I always say these things, I always try to use different ones because I talk about fighting so much. I don't really talk baseball, football, things like that. I talk about fighting all the time, but one thing that I I continue to recognize, and you you can hear it through your uh, your humble, your things like that. But you've made a good living, you know. You've been able to put foot on your table. You've kind of gone to that uh, that place. But I think that what 
people miss. And that is that uh, with guys like yourself, you create something to monetize. You have people pay if it's a coaching program or something like that. But I think what's happening in our society, I think it's probably happened for a long time, but uh, the correlation that I think is amazing about martial arts is that um, when you go to a martial arts school, number one, you still pay. But when you have a martial arts trainer, it'd be a boxing, wrestling coach, jujitsu coach or anything like that, that person has gone through the um, the same thing that you're going through. And when they've gone through it, when they meet somebody, and I'm sure that you've, you've had this feeling and, and maybe you can add to it, but when you meet somebody that you want to help, they're there's something that you look at them and you're like, just do it. Like you're looking at them and you want them to take the action. You want them to go to the next level, but you genuinely are trying to give the knowledge to them. And I think for a very long time, there was a, a place in this whole space. And especially, I think that, you know, I, I would even say like 2000 and behind, it was all about keeping everything from closed doors. It was like the CEOs were in the back. You never talked to them. The manager was always in the back. You would never talk to them. And I think there's this openness that's coming out. How, yeah. how do you feel about that in that type of analogy? Do you feel kind of the same thing? Yeah. Back then it was, it was all about job security and secrecy, right? Oh, even God. at the, even at the employee level, I mean, it's like these people that were nearing retirement and they wouldn't tell the junior people, the less experienced workers, like how they did things because they're like, oh, it's job security. I mean, we hear this joke. There's a reason that joke exists is because that's how the culture was. Think about this. When I was young, I'm 50 now. When I was young, you went to college because information was not readily available. So you had to go pay for information. There was no internet to go surf to find information. We had a, a set of encyclopedias that was probably 10 years old in your kitchen. And you had books at the library. So that was your information. So if you wanted to get a career and make six figures, they always said, hey, go to college and do this. So they were selling information. Nowadays, all the information in the world is this little plastic device that we carry in our pockets. We have the entire world and decades of information at our fingertips. So we don't value information anymore. So why are people still spending $50,000 to go to college? It's not the same value proposition as it once was. I think college should have got, they should have got cheaper. College should have gotten cheaper oh, good because God. the value of the information has become less. We have that. So people nowadays pay for implementation. They pay for higher value, more customized approaches, more personal time, more access to people. They pay for those values. It's a high value experience that we seek not so much the information. This goes back a little bit and, and you'd made a, a really cool statement. You said, uh, open-mindedness, uh, don't claim to be open-minded until you seek to understand and emphasize with those you disagree with. I think that you open a door that you're not always going to, I thought it was really funny. <laughs> I don't think you did it that way, but you're like, hey, we you made it a joke. And we're like, we might not agree at the end. And and you know, we might not. I was like, hey, we get a time to be friends. And you're like, well, we might not be friends at the end. And I kind of took it took it as a fun joke, but I thought it was really interesting because I think that what you were also sharing, and I think this is very healthy, and and I, I took it in a healthy way. Um, but you were basically saying, like, we might not agree on things. We could still have a conversation. Absolutely, man. And I thought that that was so interesting. And I, I didn't even, I, after I kind of read that, I tied what you were willing to do. And I think that y the encouragement to people is be willing to be confrontational 
even in those times of not feeling right. He said, many people falsely believe that being open-minded is the same thing as being progressive, seeking change or challenging history. You still feel the same. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we have too many people out there just kowtowing and just hanging out on political spectrums and choosing sides and trying to vilify the people that disagree with them. And man, that's not how this world or this country was built. It's just not how it works. It's great. It's a beautiful thing to have different opinions. But where the line gets crossed is each side tries to control the other people's opinions. Each side tries to control the livelihoods and belief systems of the other people. It's okay to go out there and, hey, this is what I believe in based on my evidence, the data, the experience, my wisdom, my failures. Like You're going to formulate your own opinions based on that. You'll also formulate your opinions based on where you grew up, who your parents were, what church you attended, what schools you attended. Like We have these society's input creating our belief system. And the problem is that most people that really strongly believe one way or the other, they fail to recognize that as a human, as a soul, as an energy being, that you could have equally strong beliefs in the 180 degree opposite belief system had you just been born in a different zip code or had a different set of parents or a different country or a different sex or a different race. And you would somehow internally think that I believe this with all my might and it would just be something completely opposite of what you believe today. So it becomes a fun game if you start to gain that level of awareness go, hey, why do I believe the things that I do? Even on the granular level, like why do I believe the things that I do? Where did that come from? And start going down that rabbit hole. Like where did I learn this thing? Let's talk about like politics, very polarizing subject nowadays. Let's say that, let's say you're a lifelong Democrat or a lifelong Republican. And you're like, ah, vote blue with this or vote red that, and everybody else is the enemy. Ask yourself, where did that belief system come from? Likely, it was your parents or one of the other ones that was very political that told you, like, we only vote Democrats in this household. We only vote Republican in this household because of maybe it was linked to their career. Maybe they were a union worker. Therefore, you should always vote Democrat if you're in the unions. Yeah. Or maybe they're in the military. You should always vote Republican if you're in the military. Like all these belief systems that you get carried. So you have to ask yourself, where did I pick up that belief system? And then the next question you should ask yourself is, does this belief system actually serve my goals? What are your personal goals? What do you want to achieve in your life? Does that belief system really benefit it? Or does that really something that's going to hold you back? I think a lot of times people get held back in their lives because they hold on to old belief systems that don't serve them anymore. I think he, you nail it on that. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. I had a personal experience that as I was uh, coming through life, I was wanting to be a you know entrepreneur, business owner, and want to do all those great things. And then um, there was a time in my life where there was a split and I decided to start traveling, traveling a lot of East Asia, lived in many other countries. I started to understand culture more and I was going, wait a minute, there's so much more out here. I didn't understand. I started seeing poverty I've never seen before. Started to see money that I've never seen, Monte Carlo yeah. and those areas. Oh, yeah. And you start to kind of come back and you know, you kind of try you try to kind of comprehend, you know, living in San Diego, you know, we obviously have the border here. And I would be like, you know what, keep them all. And then when I had traveled a lot, I was like, wait a minute, you know, I need to have some, I may still have some beliefs on why I think there should be a border and why I think that there should be things. I have strong beliefs on why I believe that. 
But I think that what it does is it, it allows you to kind of take a step back and say, wait a minute, you know, if I understand that man in his shoes, what's really going on in his head, he has something going on in his position in, in his life, in his country, he's looking at it totally different than I am. And I think that you can take this same conversation in business negotiation. I think you can take this same um, in the way that you handle your services, understanding your clientele and your customer. So I think that you bring it up a really, really powerful, powerful, powerful position. What's um through through that process and and you started to kind of build businesses and you go into the it sounds like you had some kind of core values that you would bring in. When you started to coach or or you made a decision uh, to start coaching, helping other people and positioning yourselves, was it difficult for you to, because I know doers, sometimes when you become a coach, it becomes frustrating. <laughs> I know this, I've coached at many different things and I was a doer for a very long time, but man, when I started coaching, it came frustrating. Did you, did you run into that too? How did you manage that? What specifically are you, do you mean by that? Uh, meaning, but, when when you start to help people, there's a frustration sometimes when you want to get it into their head, and and because of their experiences and their life, you, you're it. not really able to get it or get them to get a grasp. And when you're a doer, and if I were to pull back, um, you were absolutely if, if you're racing cars, you're you're in control. And when you're coaching people, you're not always in control. How, yeah, how did you handle that? Man, it was more frustrating before I was a coach. Let's be real here. Let's, let's think about that. If we actually create a product or service, finally, right, then we're no longer wasting energy on people who are not going to adopt your product or your services or your advice. There's a lot of people out there that everyone listening, everybody watching, you guys give advice. Maybe it's your coworker that keeps talking about, I'm going to start a business someday, or maybe it's your kids, or maybe it's your spouse or your friends. Like, we spend so much time and energy giving advice to people who will never take it. I mean, literally, I bet you know people that you've known for 20 plus years that have bitched and moaned about their situation for 20 years. And you look at them today, they're in the exact same situation, maybe even a worse situation. Maybe they let their health fade. Maybe they're still not making a dollar more than they were 20 years ago, but they'll still be happy to complain and boo-hoo to you about their situation. So that got really frustrating to me, man. Because I started, because I care about people. I want to help people. I want to yeah. see, the, I see the potential within them that they don't see for themselves. I could see what they could achieve before they could even imagine that. And I would always try to pour that into my friends and my coworkers and people I cared about. Man, and very few people are willing to take that 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 chance. If I were to put a number on it, man, it's probably 10%. Probably 10% of the people that we're out there pouring our energy into will actually take the actions, listen to the advice, and apply what they're learning. And it's unfortunate because it frustrates you. That whole 90%, they kind of just nod their head and, and they feel pumped up for a few minutes. And then you see them a month later and they're in the same situation. It's like, man, I wish they would just do it. So it was really frustrating back then. And so the shift when I became a coach, a public coach, Man, it, it still affects me a little bit, but it's a lot less because I'm pouring energy into people who have raised their hand that said, hey, I want to change. I know I'm not where I want to be. I want to get healthier. I want to get my relationships in check. I want to get my mindset in check. I want to get my business in check. So they're at least kind of pushing in that direction. And I'm just kind of helping them along in that direction. So it's not nearly as frustrating as it used to be, man. Yeah, I think there came a... I used to get... Uh... 
I think Ant, you're right on the the 10%. That number is uh, very, very prominent in the courses and and, and coaching and all that kind of stuff. And even Anthony Robbins comes out and says it's 3%. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that crazy? 3%. Maybe maybe you and I will both say 3% if we do this another 20 years. Maybe maybe we'll just keep refining and it'll get down to a lower number. Then we'll just have to have more experience. (laughs) We just need more experience. We need more data. We need millions of data points like Tony Robbins has. God, man. And I think that um, there was kind of something that was kind of difficult and, and maybe it was you, you, maybe you crossed this path too, but it was, um, how do I sell, how do I sell all this stuff coaching when 97% of the people they're purchasing it? And I mean, Anthony Robbins stuff wasn't cheap. I mean, some of his no. programs are $25,000 and that was 15 years ago. And that means that people were buying these programs for $25,000 and at that $25, you got 3% that are succeeding. There was a bit, I don't know if you caught this one. I don't know if, if, if you follow or see Grant Cardone very often, which obviously mm-hmm. you know who he is. But in that scenario, have you heard of that CoffeeZilla guy? I have not. All right. Well, you can look him up. And what he's done, and um, he basically goes in there and he'll take guys like Billy Jean. He'll take guys like Anthony Robbins. He'll take guys like Grant Cardone. And what he'll do is he'll go in and try to prove that they're just a scam. And the whole podcast, it's massive. It's called CoffeeZilla. And he'll literally try to get them on there and try to debunk this concept. And the uh, uh, Grant Cardone, had um, he had kind of done this thing on Grant Cardone and then Grant Cardone. And he just got on there and he says, look, his response was so powerful. And it basically was like, look, I can understand you're coming at me. And the first thing is, thanks a lot for all the hate, because now I have more people coming in and thank you for bringing more people in. But he had an amazing comment. And that was basically like most of the people that you're trying to break down, they're never going to build anything. And so when you look at these 3% or whatever that is, there was a portion that I remember, um, I, I remember Anthony Robbins saying that people will buy those programs because they get that five, 20 minutes to 30 minutes, whatever of thinking they're moving forward when yeah. no action was actually taken. And I, once I heard that, I was like, God, that's, I don't want to use the word depressing, but it was just like, shit, man, that's a lot of information out there when people just aren't going anywhere with it, you know? Yeah, it's that endorphin release. It's just like the people that we've also learned this from science. Like people will get the same endorphin release, the positive endorphin release by just mentioning that they're going to try to do something. So they'll go, Hey, I'm going to go try to lose 50 pounds in the next six months. And everybody's like, Yeah, you got this. And everybody's pumped up and, you know, liking the post. And then you see that person and they probably put on 50 pounds in, in that same amount of time. And it's, it's like, What happened, man? What happened? Because they got that endorphin release, they felt motivated, and then they didn't do anything. So the difference between average people and successful people is that successful people are willing to go do the actions even when they don't feel like it. Like we don't require motivation. Jason, we we like goals. We like results. I go to the gym six days a week. Half the time, I don't feel like going. I don't feel like going. I bet when you go do your martial arts or you go roll, like you probably don't feel like going half the time, but you know that you want the result and you know that that's the way to get there. So if you can just trick your mind into seeing the future and realizing that, hey, man, I've never left the gym ever in the history of my entire life having regretted being there for that day. I've never left, not once, even when I injured myself doing something stupid, I've never regretted having gone to the gym today. So if I can trick my mind in that moment where I don't feel like it, that I know that in a couple hours when I leave, I'll actually be glad I went and I'll be happy and I'll feel better. 
then I'm going to think about that instead of where I'm at right now. So think about that, your food, the things that you eat, the things that you watch, the getting addicted to CNN or Fox, like all that shit. Like if it brings your energy down and makes you angry about your life and your situation, those people that create that content know that. They know that that that's what's doing it to you and that that you're addicted to that. You're like, it's like a train wreck. Like you can't look away from them. They're going to keep creating those train wrecks every single day in some way to distract you from what you should be doing. So these are the levels of awareness that most people, unfortunately, just don't even understand. They just don't have that awareness. I think something's kind of cool. And I try to try to be observant and things like that. And one thing I'm kind of catching here, and I think that any if you're if you're listening to this, I, I want you to to really to really look at this, there's patterns in your life. And when I kind of dissect the little, little moments we have together, when you go back and you, you took action on everyone. Okay. I'm going to build this community, but Hey, I don't know what's going to, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to start building this community. It didn't, it started with one guy. I mean, maybe there was five. <laughs> it wasn't that Just many. One. I'm sure. Just one. Just one guy. Yeah. And, and it goes from it. So then what you did is you went for it. Okay. Pattern number one kind of took the risk. Now you're, you're racing. You're, you're the guy in the car. And I think that something, if you're drag racing, ex especially, you know, there's all this movement, it's, you know, everything's obviously you're trying to calm yourself down for that one moment of just bang. And it's everything all out, full out, go, go, go. And then when you decide you go for coaching, you can see these patterns that you're saying, look, I'm going to go do this. Now I'm going to go. When I've, I went back and looked at some of your stuff, and said, you were doing some Olympic presses, right? And you're doing some deadlifts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, that's some badass shit. Like, I like guys like that. You know, they're, as we get older, you're, you're still trucking, you're doing shit and, and you're using your body. And like, I think that's awesome. And I think that what you continue to show is that that doesn't just happen in the one thing you do. Oh, I'm going to read this book. Okay, I'm going to read the book. And then you say, hey, I'm going to go and do this. Okay, I'm going to go and do it like that. This is a mindset that you have that you have not taken it just for that one thing you use it over and over and over again and each one of those you probably never raced before you raced you didn't have the community you didn't coach you obviously were trying to help people you didn't kind of take and then you kind of went through it so what what on a mindset side would you add to this conversation in in that context well, I would say, Jason, that you're very observant in the short time that we've got to spend together because that is definitely the way I am. I've always been taught to finish what I start and that if you start quitting, you build, become the identity of a quitter and you start to adopt being a quitter and you start to have more self-doubt and less confidence because confidence is not something we're born with. It's something that we earn by keeping promises to ourselves and other people and it's simply showing up and doing what you say you're going to do being consistent on a daily basis. These things are what really create confidence. And the smallest, the tiniest little steps can create confidence over time. But as soon as you break a promise to yourself or break a promise to other people, your integrity goes out the window and it kind of sits downward spiral that occurs afterwards and you end up failing again or quitting. And so don't start something unless you're willing to finish it. And if you're going to start something, don't half-ass it, man. Too many people half-ass everything. They, they go hobby- business with a hobby result. And then they go, how come I didn't make millions of dollars? Like, because you went into it, treating it like a hobby, thinking that you're going to compete in an open market with a bunch of professionals. Yeah, They're going to recognize that you're a hobbyist. They're not going to give you their money. They're not going to hire you. They're not going to buy your hobby product. They're going to go hire or build or buy something from professionals. And 
it's a very, very small difference between perceived hobbyist versus a professional nowadays. It's like I said, it's easy to build websites. Like if you can't go spend $3,000 to build a professional looking website, you don't belong in the same field as the people you're competing with. That's the truth. Because that's a very, very low barrier to entry to something that can earn you six figures, seven figures, maybe even eight figures if you're really good. But you got to think about these things. If I'm going to go do something, launch a podcast, perhaps, if I just treat it like a hobby, I should only expect hobby results. I shouldn't be hard on myself. And that's what if that's what you want, that's great. Go be a hobbyist and get hobby results. But man, there's so many people nowadays that just do hobby shit and hobby level shit but they expect professional results and they're not getting it. It's like, man, go all in or don't even start. That's the hard, that's a hard truth. A lot of people don't like to hear it, but that's the truth, man. If you want to win, quit half-assing things. God, man, I, we could probably do this for another four hours. There's so many different rabbit holes and, and the way you articulate things. I, I think that um, you're needed in the communities that are out there. I can see that this is, what you're doing today, I, through your patterns, it'll probably a shift again in something that you you bring in life. Uh, Tony Watley, I think that this has been an incredible experience. Um, I really appreciate you being on on this podcast. And um, how do people find you if they want to learn more about you and, and Dri uh, Driven 365, which you have a, a podcast as well? I want to make sure that uh, you get that plug as well. But how, how do people find you? Yeah, the, the podcast name is 365 Driven. Since you're already listening to podcasts, like hop over there and, and check it out. And uh, the website's 365driven.com and you'll find my books and the communities and everything I do on social media over there. I keep it simple. So yeah, appreciate the opportunity, man. And you know, I like the vibe, dude. I'm going to have you come on my show as well. I think that we'd have a good part two conversation over there. Tony, I appreciate you. Thanks for being a guest. And everybody that's on here, um, this is the Moved Entrepreneur Evolved podcast. Just like Tony here, we give him respect and we try to do the best we can to do our homework. Uh, we try to do that with every guest that's on here. So like and subscribe. Go back to other episodes. We've got some amazing guests that are there as well. Tony, Watley, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate you. Thank you, man. If you like this episode, make sure you smash the like button and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just like Nike is to athletes, Moved is to entrepreneurs.